our mercy ministry here. So Luke chapter 4, I want to begin reading at verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then this final verse, verse 21, and he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now we're not going to get to the response of the crowd right now because that's not the main point of the sermon. So I wanted just to end with verse 21 where again it says, and he began to say to them, who's the them? The people who are in the synagogue, a Jewish place of worship, who are listening to him and who are preparing to hear him speak on this passage that was written about 600 years actually before Jesus came from the prophet Isaiah, from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. They're listening to him, and Jesus says, or the passage says here in verse 21, and he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your midst. Now I want you to notice that the passage doesn't say And he said to, it's a very little point, but I think it's a significant point. The passage doesn't say, and he said to them, today this passage is fulfilled in your midst. Namely, the passage is fulfilled in me. But he began to say to them, which gives us the indication that Jesus announced that what Isaiah wrote 600 years before is being fulfilled and embodied in him. And he kept repeating that. He lays out Isaiah 61 to the people and he keeps telling them all of what Isaiah is saying is fulfilled in in me. And what we see in this passage here is that Jesus then, in speaking about those who he has come to preach to and minister to, is also our template or for our model to do the same. And why do I say that? Remember the the parable of the Good Samaritan where this Samaritan man ministered to someone who was beaten up and trashed by the side of the road? And Jesus said, who is the one who showed mercy to that man? And obviously it was the Good Samaritan. And Jesus said, now you go do likewise. You do likewise. Jesus is always our model for ministry. So we're going to look at that this morning. Now, If you have your Bibles open, I want you to take a look at verse 16 or take a look at the passage. We see that Jesus came to his hometown of Nazareth where he had been brought up, it says. So this is a child of the congregation. This is like, kids, this is like you, one of you growing up, little boys growing up, you say, I'm going to, I want to become a pastor, right? And then you go through what's called seminary training, which is a training for men who want to enter into the ministry, the preaching ministry and church ministry. And then there's going to come a time where you have to preach a sermon to your home congregation. Someone like 
Fred Struick, who had to do that, uh, you know, you remember a number of months ago. And that can be somewhat of an intimidating thing. You're just not preaching in any church, but you're preaching in your home church. Well, that's Jesus. He goes to Nazareth in Galilee. He goes up to the synagogue where he's brought up as a kid. And on the Sabbath day, he stood up to read. And we read that the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Now, kids, I want you to look up here. Take a look at this, right? You know what this is. This is a Bible. This is what your pastor preaches from every, every week, right? But during the days of Jesus, they didn't have a book like this. What they had were, were scrolls. And what he would, you, would, you would unwind, and every synagogue had a number of scrolls with various parts of the Bible in it. And at that time, Old Testament, because the New Testament wasn't written yet. And Jesus rolls this scroll, and, and what is on that scroll? The, the book of Isaiah, particularly Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2. Jesus sees that, he reads that, and then he begins to speak on that very passage. Now, when you, when you read your Bibles, you see that Jesus just wasn't any kind of teacher, and Jesus wasn't any kind of preacher. Now, we have to understand at this time that there were what we call uh, kids, rabbis. Rabbi, the word rabbi or rabbi means teacher. And there were teachers in these synagogues, and usually they were very, very bright men who knew their Bibles very well. And then they would, they would read from the Bible, or they would read from Torah, from the law of God, and then they would give um, a very sometimes sophisticated explanation. And when they would read the Torah or various parts of the Bible, they would often type um, cite other eminent rabbis or teachers. So rabbi so-and-so would say this about the passage, and rabbi so-and-so would say that. And the people would listen to that, and sometimes the, the, the rabbis would just kind of drone on. And the people were not gripped by the word of God. But when Jesus came, Jesus was very different. The Bible says that Jesus preached with authority. Jesus taught with conviction. Jesus taught with clarity. And above all, Jesus taught in the power of the Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. How do we know that? Let's put the passage into context. Now, you don't have it on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, take a look at Luke chapter 1, if you would. Let's set the context, all right? So Luke chapter, uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 1 and following, occurs on the heels of Jesus' baptism. And you remember in Jesus' baptism, he was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, and then while he was being baptized, we read that there was a voice from heaven that said from the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to what he has to say. And we also read how the Holy Spirit came down in the form of the dove and descended upon Jesus. And that was Jesus' anointing and his empowerment to do the work of the ministry that God had called him to do. Okay? So we read in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus now, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, that is the Jordan River, in his baptism, and then by that very Spirit, it says, he was led into the wilderness. Mark, in his gospel, says that Jesus was actually, the word is stronger, he was actually driven into a wilderness, and what happened in the wilderness? If you grew up in the Bible you realize that this was a time of testing at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry where he was tempted by the devil. But without going into all kinds of details, Jesus passed this test 
with the Spirit's help and the Spirit's empowerment. And then verse 14, chapter 4, verse 14, we read that Jesus then returned from that time of testing in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And then it's in that power of the Spirit that Jesus goes to Nazareth. And then, if you look at, and you can look at the screen now, chapter 4, verse 18, we read that Jesus announces the passage from Isaiah chapter 61. And what does Isaiah say? He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. You know what? You and I don't grow in the Christian faith without the work of the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, why are you even here this morning? You were here this morning not just because you thought, well, it's a rainy day, I've got nothing better to do, I think I'll go worship with the people of God, or maybe I haven't been to church for a while and that's what I should do. No, it's the Holy Spirit, whether you realize it or not, that's working in you, that says, you know what, you need, even though your heart may not be in a perfect place, you do need to go and worship with the people of God. You do need to hear the preaching, you do need to hear the teaching and the power of the Spirit. So we are here. Jesus himself, I don't know if you oftentimes think about this, but Jesus himself was dependent upon the Spirit of God. And it's in this power of the Spirit then that he opens up Isaiah 61. Again, this is the very beginning of his ministry. So he's about 30 years old. And remember, Jesus' ministry lasted about three years. So he's just in the very beginning. He goes to his hometown crowd. He opens up Isaiah 61 in the power of the Spirit. And then he speaks some words. And what does he say? On the basis of Isaiah 61, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he has, the word is anointed. That means he's set me apart and he's empowered me. If you take a look at the text or in your Bible, what does he come to do in the power of the Spirit? And what is he anointed by the Spirit to do? Three words. Proclaim good news. Proclaim good news. That word, proclaim good news, three words in our English language, one word in the Greek language, euangelizo, which basically means I've come to to preach, to proclaim, and to play, proclaim good news. Now, he doesn't spell out the good news here, but he says, I've come to proclaim good news. And then he mentions the very individuals to whom he proclaims good news. Who are they? Is it the rich? The famous? The well-dressed? No. Jesus has come for those who we oftentimes... I wouldn't say we look down upon them, but we sometimes neglect them. The poor. Jesus says, I've come to proclaim freedom for captives. I've come to recover sight to the blind. And I've come to set at liberty, that is, give freedom to those who are oppressed. In the original language, the word oppressed is, could be also translated, those who are just broken and bruised. Somewhat like maybe the young people for whom we gave the offering at Cyrus House. And there are many others in this place in which we live called Abbotsford and the Fraser Valley. Now, when Jesus says, I've come to proclaim good news, what we do is we kind of, we, we, we enter into the very reason why Jesus has come to earth. You know, I think a lot of us, if someone would ask you on the street, well, late, you believe in Jesus? Yes. Well, what, what did, what, you believe that Jesus came to earth, right? Yes. Why did he come to earth? And I think you would say, well, he came to earth to, to speak, to live, but also to die. So I might be forgiven of my sins and so that I could be put in right standing with God. And that would be a true statement. When you look at the Bible, though, 
And you see from Jesus' own lips in the very beginning of the ministry, he says, I have come to do what? I've come to preach the kingdom. That's why John the Baptist, who comes before Jesus, announces this. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God has come. And then Jesus comes along, and he repeats the very words of John the Baptist. Repent, he says, that is, turn from your sins and enter the kingdom of God. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, I am the king, and I've come to bring my kingdom. I'm going to explain that in just a moment. But when Jesus says, I have come to bring, I've come to, 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 to preach and to bring good news and enact that good news in the lives of people, he's really, when you take a look at the Bible as a whole, there's, there's two things that we can see about this good news, two things that make it attractive, two things that make it beautiful. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to mention two for the sake of time. This is very important for us to understand. What makes the good news of Jesus so good for the kinds of individuals that he mentions, the poor and the broken and the blind and the enslaved, is that the good news is intended for these individuals to be what I call holistic. It's, it's comprehensive. Now, I want to challenge you in something, and, and that is this. A lot of times people think that the good news that Jesus Christ came to bring is that he would come into this world and he would confront us with our sins, and he would address the spiritual side of our lives and our souls, and he would save our souls so that then in time we can be saved from our sins and then also have eternal life and have a blessed relationship with God. Now, is that true? Absolutely, absolutely. But the good news that Jesus Christ has come to bring is even, even fuller than that. Not less than that, but fuller and what do I mean by that? Think of it this way. Jesus is a king. And Jesus says himself, I've come to bring my kingdom. Now, if I were to ask you what comes to mind when you think of the kingdom of God, a lot of us would say, hmm, probably some of us are like, I, you know what? I, I'm not quite sure. Or other of us, when we think of a kingdom, we think of a place, don't we? But when we think of the kingdom that Jesus Christ has come to bring, don't think so much of a place but a power. A power. The kingdom of God refers to the renewing power of Jesus Christ that works in the lives of individuals and changes everything about them. It's a power that lifts people out of poverty. It's a power that opens their eyes to their need. It's a power that frees them from enslaving habits. It's a power that heals them from various forms of brokenness. For those of us who have had the opportunity to be brought up in Christian homes, we, we, we realize that as we live our lives, we, we, we realize that, that we do live as a contrast community. We live as, as individuals who are in the world. And for a lot of us, we grew up in homes where, you know what, moms and dads stayed together, where we were provided for, dad maybe had a decent job, maybe dad and mom brought us to church. For a number of us, we've had the opportunity and the privilege of Christian education and all of these things. These are all reflective of the blessings of the kingdom of God. But maybe you're here this morning and you say, I didn't grow up with that. I didn't grow up with that. But it doesn't stop you from experiencing the blessings of the king in your life beginning today. 
When you come to the point of your life where you come to the end of yourselves and you realize who you are before the face of God, and that is someone who does not live in a way that you should, and that you are what the Bible calls a sinner, when you come to that very pivotal point in your life, you say, I cannot move on like this, and what I need is I need the forgiveness of my sins, I need to be reconciled to God, and I need a change in my life. When you cry out to God, God does answer that prayer in and through the person of the person of our passage, that is Jesus Christ. So that when, when you come in contact with what we call the gospel, the good news, and when you come into contact with Jesus Christ himself, that changes everything. It renews you. It transforms you. It transforms the way you live your life. It transforms the way you look at sexuality. It transforms who you, if you're not married, who you seek in a spouse. It transforms your marriage. It transforms the way you raise your kids. It transforms just, just every aspect of your life. So you begin a different direction, all because of embracing Jesus and the blessings of the kingdom. So don't, when you think of Jesus, don't think of a narrow just saving of, saving, um, being forgiven of my sin so I'm in a right relationship with God. It is that. It's much more than that. The gospel changes everything about your life. It takes all those things that are disintegrating in your life, all the little pieces they're all around you, and Jesus starts putting those pieces together. So you start experiencing what the Bible calls shalom, peace, health, blessing in your life. And it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. But one other thing, and I'll be um, a bit more brief with this, and that is this. Um, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is not only holistic, comprehensive, and changes everything about our lives, but the beautiful thing about the good news of Jesus Christ is um, it's impartial. That is, it's very interesting, Jesus does not play favorites. Jesus does not favor the rich over the poor. Jesus does not favor male over female. Jesus does not favor always, um, you know, uh, people of high social standing over those who have little social standing. Jesus doesn't play that game. Jesus says, I have not, I've come to this earth not for those who are healthy, but for those who are sick. Listen to these beautiful words from the book of Romans. For the scripture says, everyone who believes upon him, everyone, no matter what your background, no matter what your sins, no matter what you have done or left undone, it doesn't matter. At this point, the Bible says, everyone who believes upon him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. As the Bible says elsewhere, between male and female, rich or poor, slave or free. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches upon whom? Upon all who call upon him. For everyone who calls upon the name of of the Lord will be saved. Here's the hand of God, and it comes into this world, and it reaches out through the mouth of God speaking good news, but the hand of God also reaches out and takes those who are most lowly and those who are most lost, and he draws them to himself. And if you think about it, when you look at the rest of the Bible, we see that that provides 
a model or a template for what we are called to do in the world and what we're called to do in the city. Let me give you a quick example of that. A number of you um, have been wondering, um, and you've, you've kind of received some emails about this, and you've probably heard about this, about some connection um, with some uh, uh, Afghanis who came to um, Abbotsford. And I'll, I'll be short with this. How did that all begin? Here's how it all began. Um, Joy and I were hosting a care group one night in our home, and we had to go to the store to, to get a few things. So I said, well, let's just let's take a quick walk to the store. So we're walking to the store, and a, a number of you know where Delaire Park is. So we've been walking through Delaire Park, ready to go to the co-op store, the grocery store. And, and while we're walking along, I, I see in the playground, I see two women who had uh, a, um, the type of dress that was a little bit different from East Indian. I thought, that they look different. I, bet, I wonder if they're Afghani. And I said to Joy, well, I wonder if they're Afghani. She says, maybe. And I said, well, let's go over there. So we went over there. And so I went, I, w I went from the back, and then I went to the front of them, and I said, are you from Afghanistan? And they, they said, yes, yes. And I said, well, um, my name is Philip, and that is Joy. And uh, welcome to Canada. You know? And then we got into, to make a long story short, we got into this, this conversation, and we said, and, and we realized they didn't know anybody. And they're living in a hotel. That's what the government puts them for a time, they live in a hotel. I said, would you like to come over for Thanksgiving meal? Well, sure. So that's how it all began. We had about 10 Afghanis. And then uh, John and Renee Zitzma joined us, and Alan and Connie Bovey joined us for the meal. It was a wonderful evening. And then it just kind of snowballed from there, and then we got this clothing drive uh, at the local hotel, which uh, many clothes were provided for you, and I want to thank you very much for that. There was such kindness. There's been actually there, there are many kindnesses that you have shown to Joy and me in the past week and to these needy people. Okay? But that, that's how organically things begin to grow, and you meet one person, and they connect you with another person, and, it, and it, it is a beautiful thing to behold. Now, here's what I want to get at. Just as an example, when the Afghanis come, they come with virtually little to nothing. They have monetary needs because they, they come with hardly any money at all. And whatever little money they get from the government, many times they will send it overseas to their even poorer parents. Some who are still laboring in, in Afghanistan, and are under threats, and others who are in, um, in Iran, Iran, because they seem to share the same language, the Farsi language. So they come with monetary needs, they come with relational needs, because they only know a few other Afghanis, otherwise they know any, nobody, they nobody, so there's, there are a few, few friends. They come, with, with um, they come with emotional needs, because they have been under the oppression of the Taliban for so many years, and they also come, of course, for spiritual needs because they don't know the gospel, many of them, most of them. And then you think, what, what, a, what, a, what a beautiful and what a wonderful opportunity. You know, the Lord, the, Lord, the Lord doesn't call us to be a comfy little church, you know, and the Lord just doesn't call us to have a little preservationist attitude that we just preserve what we have. Brothers and sisters, we have the gospel, and as Fritz prayed, and we celebrate Reformation Day tomorrow, we have been given the glorious heritage of our Reformation tradition. Who are we to hold back on that? Jesus says, let that light shine, man. Let it shine. Be the salt of the earth. And pray for opportunities. And let me tell you something. When you pray for opportunities, they come. Be prepared. And sometimes they come in greater measure than what you expect. Okay? Now, one other thing. I want to go back to the passage. Luke chapter 4. And I want to draw your attention... AV, if it's not up there, go to, go to um, verse 18. 
and 19 of uh, Luke chapter 4. Now, again, this is Isaiah 61, and I want to mention a few things here, and I'm going to start wrapping it up. Um, follow along with me, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, says Jesus, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, liberty or freedom for the oppressed, that is, the broken and the bruised. And then he comes with this kind of wrap-up statement. I have come to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. It's like he's, he's reading Isaiah 61, and Isaiah, as a prophet, is building and building. He talks about ministry to the poor, the blind, the broken, the enslaved. And then we have this culminating statement. Jesus says, I have come to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, you listen to that and you kind of go, oh, good. That's part of the good news. That's a very significant statement that Jesus is making there when he says, I've come to bring the favorable year of the Lord. And I'll tell you why. Because I want to suggest to you that what Jesus is doing when he says, says I'm coming, I've come to bring the favorable year of the Lord, he's drawing our attention back to an Old Testament festival, which is called the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee happened every 50 years and it lasted for one year, and it was during that year, and it was a year of good news, because slaves were freed, debts were forgiven, and there was special attention paid to widows and orphans and foreigners, to those who were vulnerable. In a sense, it was a special year of mercy, of mercy. One commentator writes this. He says, what fueled Jubilee was the love of God, a love that flowed freely, not only to the successful, but to the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. And now Jesus is saying, all, all of what Jubilee stood for and pointed forward to now is fulfilled in me. I've come to bring the good news of God's favor, and that's what we're called to do as well. And then there's one other really interesting thing that's going on in this passage. Notice, now, for those of you who have your Bibles, I want you to look down at verses 18 and especially verse 19. And if you have your Bibles open to that, at the same time, I want you to put your uh, eyes um, on, no, 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 go back, to on this, okay? You're going to you're gonna have to do double duty here, okay? So I'm going to read Isaiah 61 again. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, liberty to those who are oppressed. And then Jesus ends it to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So remember, he's reading from this scroll, and you can guarantee that the scroll contains all of Isaiah 61 and probably more. Yet, Jesus chooses to omit one phrase that we find in our Bibles, Isaiah 61. If you go to that next one. Notice the last phrase there. Jesus says, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then in Isaiah 61, we also read, and the day of the vengeance of our God. But in the synagogue, Jesus omits that last phrase, the day of the vengeance of God. And so you ask yourself the question, well, doesn't Jesus believe that that day of vengeance is coming, that the day of God's final judgment is coming? Oh, yeah, he believes that. But he chooses to omit it. Why? Because Jesus is saying, that day will one day come, but that day ain't now. Today 
is the day not of the vengeance of God, but today is the window of opportunity. Today is the day, indeed, I've come to bring the year of the favor of God. Today is not the day for bad news. Today is the day for good news. And it's that very good news that God has entrusted us through this pulpit and with our own mouths to bring not only to each other for our own encouragement, but to bring to this city as lights of the world and as the salt of the earth. So I leave you with this. Jesus lays out here good news, the favor of God. Indeed, what he's doing is he's laying out all the blessings of shalom, of peace, all the blessings of the kingdom of God. So the question then becomes, how do we enter into the blessings of the kingdom of God? How do we enter into a life of shalom, of health and peace and just mental and emotional equilibrium? How do we enter into all of that? The Bible is very clear, and it's very simple. Jesus says, you must be born again. You know what that means? It means the inward disposition of your heart has to be changed. In other words, new life has to be infused into your soul, into your very being, so you put this behind you, and you start living the new life. You need to be born again. We all need to be born again. We all need the new life of God through the working of God's Spirit. We need to be born again. Then, secondly, in light of that rebirth, we need to come to the point of repenting of our sins. You know what repenting of your sins means? It means that you come to grips with who you are and how you are naturally, and people don't like to hear it, but it's true, we're naturally in our sins, an offense to God. We don't take that seriously enough. We need to repent, we need to come to grips with our sin, and we need to confess it, and then what we need to do is we need to do an about-face, and we move in this direction. What is this direction? It's the direction of Jesus. And in the Bible, repentance and faith, repentance and belief, come together like this. So we need to repent, and then we need to believe, we need to entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin, because he alone can take it away. And we have to believe that what Jesus did on the cross, he not just did for others, but he did for me too. And then finally, what we need to do is we need to pick ourselves up and we need to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ and we need to follow him. And you know what that means? It means to die to yourself. Put your old ways behind and say, Jesus, no more that. Now it's all this. Now I come and I follow you and I'm going to trust that as I do that, you will bless me for that. And you'll bring increasing shalom to my life. But I need to cling to you. I need to cling to you. And I promise to do that. That's quite a shift, isn't it? But it's a shift that we all need to embody in our lives. Okay? I want to leave you with this. When, when Jesus teaches here on mercy to the vulnerable and the needy, which are all around us. What he is doing is he is actually, again, not creating anything new, no teaching. What he's doing, he's drawing our hearts and our minds back again to the Old Testament, the way that things should be lived out among God's people. Now, if you put that last passage up, if you would, look at Leviticus 19, 33 and 34. When a stranger sojourns with you, that means when someone who is different and usually is outside the faith, when that person comes in your midst, 
You shall do no wrong to him. I don't think that's a problem for most people in the church, that when a stranger comes who may not even be a Christian, I don't think we go up to that person and go, hey, oh, I, I discovered you're not a Christian. Well, you're not welcome here. We don't do that, right? We know better than that. So typically that's not our issue of doing wrong to that person or oppressing that person. But more positively, the passage says, you shall treat him or her as the native among you. That means when that different person comes and comes under the sway of the gospel, whether they are Christian or not, the Lord says, I want you to treat that person as a native among you. In other words, I want you to treat that person as one of your own. Now's the kicker. And you shall love him. For you are once strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall love him or love her. What does that mean? It means you shall set your heart's affection upon that individual, whether poor or blind or broken or oppressed or enslaved in some way. You shall put out, you shall put out your love to them. Like Jesus did with the rich young ruler who asked, what, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And the Gospel of Mark says, and Jesus loved him. He says, you shall love him or her. And that means setting your heart's affection on that person. And what it means is that you are willing to die to yourself and disadvantage yourself for the sake of that person. And when we're willing to do that, brothers and sisters, we are reflecting the Lord himself who says to us, to the extent that you did that to that person who is in need, you actually did it to me. The good news of the kingdom of God for all of us here this morning and indeed for the city as well. Join me in prayer, if you would. Heavenly Father, We love the good news because it means everything for our lives. It's a good news that renews when we are down. It's, it's, it's a good news that lifts the spirit. It's a good news that lifts us out of so many forms of enslavement due to our sins and it sets us on a different path. Lord, we thank you for the Christian faith. We thank you for the glories of the Reformation. We thank you that we are children of that heritage. We thank you above all that we belong to Jesus. And we pray, O oh God, that our love for you would grow so deeply that it would be manifest broadly to those who are in need. And Lord, we thank you that, that our hands are in this now. We pray that it would only increase. And Lord, we think of this city, but we think of people in the world, and we think of someone like John and Renee, who are able to bring some of the blessings of that kingdom to those far away, and to many children who are orphaned, and many children who are in need. And we thank you for their experiences there, and we look forward to hearing them in just a moment. So Father... Continue to build the gospel here. Continue to deepen our hearts for each other and for those around us who are in need of that gospel of the kingdom. God, do that, we pray. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.